Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So that was really the birth of an obsession, which I didn't mean to trip into. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 51. This feature is part two of our conversation with Sophie Roberts. So if you haven't heard part one, then I'd suggest you backtrack slightly and sink your teeth into episode 50. With that in mind, if you're settling into this episode, then you're already aware of who Sophie is and what she's done. So there's no need for a detailed intro today. When we ended part one, we were talking about travelling through Chad and in some of the riskier parts of the world. So let's just dive straight back in. So is it dangerous, these places that you're working? Um, Look, maybe, um, but I say to my kids... um, Everywhere, including our local town, Bridport, is dangerous if you take the wrong street with the wrong person. Um, I work with professionals, unlike lots of brilliant people that I've heard on your podcast who go in alone and take all the risk on their own shoulders and their own expertise. I'm a writer. I do not go into these places um, without knowing my exit before I, I even enter. I do not go into these places without professionals who have got all the systems in place Um, to ensure that I am able to operate professionally, always. Um, I haven't got the headspace to do anything else. Yes, I'm I'm on the edge of things sometimes, but I, um, like I say, the basic rule is I never go in unless I know my exit. And I always work with professionals. Um, It's, you just heard me on the phone with um, my friend who I'm going to be working up in the north of Scotland, you know, uh, being on a Munro in November is dangerous if you're not a mountain guide. I'm not. So I need a pro with me. So I'm not trying to be, I'm not interested in kind of the I hero narrative because that's not what I do. I, I'm interested in being able to be in a place and talk and feel that someone else is making sure that all the logistics are functioning um, if I can't do that for myself, absolutely, yeah, it's has, a collaboration. Has that ever gone wrong? Backfired? Yeah, it has. I worked in Uganda when I woke up in the morning to the sound of mortars coming over the border from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We were right on the border, just like wee boom. And I remember then having to make, I was with the photographer, I do a lot of work with Michael Turek, and we had to make a quick decision about how to behave. And But that was, you know, a slightly unstable, very unstable area. Um, but I knew my exit and we got out. Then it's happened in, um, I worked in an area called Garamba, which is in 
really dodgy bit of northern democratic republic of the congo where um we were i was working with the conservationists up there and they do brave brave work and that that was pretty edgy um it's where um joseph coney's crew are um and you just kind of feel this kind of malevolent energy in the long grass i mean it's just it's just it's just a really violent place and we were having to i was there with a different photographer and we were having to behave incredibly cautiously and respond incredibly quickly to shifting events so yeah sometimes sometimes i'm trying to think where else I mean, I often will, like I was meant to go to Socotra, um, Yemen, just before lockdown hit. And I pulled about a week before because I could, you know, my instinct for risk is, um, is, is softened by having kids in lots of ways. So I always measure it. And I've always, you know, I've got a fantastic husband and I say to him, are you cool about this? And he's only ever, I think he said, no, he's not cool. He said he wasn't cool about that one because Yemen was kicking off and COVID was kicking off. And he didn't think it was a good idea. And he was right. But he never said no to the DRC. He never says no. He's good. He doesn't, he's, he's you know, he doesn't judge things by the stereotype either. So, which is important. Yeah, it is. I don't want to ask the cliches of like how you justify it and stuff like that because I think you've sort of answered it already. It's more, I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, you are through and through a journalist, a writer, a people person. Do you like the risk? Do you like the danger? And Yeah, I have to feel it. And that became another, um, that became another kind of, um, moment when I knew I was kind of moving more into my own skin um, as opposed to this on paper equals a story and this in my heart makes my makes my pulse beat a bit faster so when that happens it's 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 worth absence it's worth risk it's worth um, the unknowable um, if something if something is moving faster in your veins, and I think that I, it's definitely adrenaline. It's I'm definitely an addict, um, and those things are all part of the decisions I make all the time now. Definitely, if I if I'm not moved by it, and that's usually with a bit of a risk involved, then um, I'm going to produce dead words. You got to feel it. You've got to feel it. And the I went to see a therapist actually about seven years ago because I was, because I'm an optimist, I say yes to everything. And I was getting overwhelmed by um, the machinery of modern living saying yes, 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 yes. And then not having time to breathe, you know. And so I went to see this woman who, uh, she was an American and I said to her, this is my problem. And she's like, uh, she works with photographers and filmmakers. Um, she's quite specific in what she does. And she spends a couple of days um, uh, analyzing your, 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 I think she looked at my, you know, the stars that I was born under. I mean, it was pretty, 
pretty odd. And then she looks at my, you know, the history of my relationship, my father, and, you know, goes into a place. And I'm like, this is just totally not relevant. Um, but anyway, I sat through the whole thing. And um, by the time I finished, um, she was brilliant. She drilled down, this is her mechanism, she drilled down to three things. Um, and she said to me, if, if one of those things, if the, if the opportunity you're being given, given hits one of those things, you always say no. If it hits two of those things, you so say yes only if you're skint. If it hits three of those things, you drop everything and you do it. And my three things were the opportunity comes through the door. Is it humane? By which does it increase my sense of humanity and potentially others? Is it humane? So does it affect people? Two, is it um, something that I can do with my skill set better than others? So does it allow me to pursue my perfectionism that matters to me as a professional? So, and the third one is, is it enigmatic? So is it a story that doesn't quite close off? Is it a story that, or an opportunity where there's space in between? And if my the opportunity comes through the door. So do you want to go and look for lost pianos in Siberia? It's humane, it's enigmatic, and it's got the potential for the thing that I want to be good at, which is journalism, the perfectionism. Perfect story, I do it. Do you want to go and review a um, smart hotel in, um, in uh, I don't know, Vienna, with all your kids for a week and have a really nice holiday and I just need a thousand words it's not humane it's not enigmatic and it's not none of them so I don't do it do you see what I mean yeah so it's um it became it becomes this kind of I have here I find it I have my little special triangle I have this matrix that makes I can't find it now there you go my son made it for me it's a red plastic triangle and I hold that in my hand and I think does it touch all three points there you go that's wonderful. <laughs> Little red plastic triangle. It's a red plastic triangle. Yeah, I made it in tech. But yeah, so it helps me. So it helps my restlessness find its sort of, if you like, its still center, its focus. Because otherwise it's just kind of, yes, yes, yes. And then I'm overwhelmed and I'm in a floods of tears. How do I keep up? How do I juggle? Um, it's a way of kind of focusing uh, mind and time in a busy world. So if I were a betting man, I would guess that there are a thousand books <laughs> at least in this room. How do you take all of your experiences and the words that you've read and the words that you've written, places you've been, people you've met, and decide to write your first book about pianos in Siberia? Um... So that was really the birth of an obsession, which I didn't mean to trip into. It was a, um, it came out of a friendship. So as of, um, I've been going to Mongolia for many years. It's a sort of like private, slightly private space for me and my family. Um, years ago, I went on an assignment for the Financial Times um, about the cashmere industry. And I met a guy when I was there who's a German who'd married a Mongolian. He was a filmmaker in back in his day. 
And they had three kids and they were bringing them up on the steps of Mongolia in a place called the Orkhon Valley, which is about eight hours outside of Ulaanbaatar driving. Uh, it wildly, wildly beautiful. It's above a kind of silver snaking river. Um, it's the very near the, birth, the, the sort of um, the old capital of Genghis Khan's empire at Karakorum. Uh, it's incredible. And, and it's a very... Um, it's a it's a kind of shaman's landscape, and anyway, my kids, my husband, we've all been going there. We spend two three weeks there every summer, and it was just a place where we can be, and we lose track of all the things that otherwise tether us to um, everyday life. And in the summer of 2015, we were there, and um, their eldest daughter and a number of the other kind of herder kids were all learning piano from a young uh, Mongolian pianist. Um, who had a God-given talent, and they were playing, she was playing in one of these tented, you know, the tents, the gares, beautiful, round, felted tent that the, the herders live in. And she was playing on this baby grand Yamaha piano that had seen better days that they'd brought in from the capital. And it was an evening, you know, you can imagine, you know, the stars above, there's no cars, there's nothing, just horses and yaks outside and the river below and the fire burning in the middle and maybe 15 or 20 of us in this room with the most perfect because of that felt acoustics that you've, you know, it's like just divine. She's playing Bach and... Uh, I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And um, he, he, this pianist called Ogdorel, um, who I'd become friendly with that summer, um, had spent seven, eight years training in Italy, um, sponsored by my German friend, because he'd heard this talent many years before and said it had to, something had to happen with it. And through him and others, they'd managed to pay for her to go to this conservatory in Perugia. But anyway, we're listening to Bach, and imagine in the evening the starlit sky, da da da. And um, he leans over to me and, is, and he says, um, and I say, oh God, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And he said, um, no, 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 that piano is out of sorts. This, the Mongolian climate is really harsh. Um, you know, it gets so cold, there's the apocryphal story that the cow's tails snap in two. It's, you know, minus 40, boom, it's brutal in winter and too hot in summer. So a piano doesn't fare too well. Uh, and he whispers in my ear, no, no, that piano is out of sorts. Um, we need to find her one of the lost pianos of Siberia. And he fed the phrase. And he knew what he was doing. You know, he'd worked on Apocalypse Now, this guy. He was a pretty special human being. And he uh, gave me the phrase. And he gave me the phrase that started to evolve into a hunt for a instrument. I started in Mongolia. I looked hard in Mongolia. I went down to the Gobi. I went west and there just wasn't any instrument with the kind of sound and story that we wanted to tell. And so then I went over the border in Siberia and where I discovered an extraordinary connection between Russian 19th century piano mania and the distribution of these instruments into the far reaches of the country. And that happened at the as as I started to sort of explore whether there was a beginnings of a story still you know interested by the idea um but not convinced that I wanted to give five years to looking for a piano in a place like Russia um I went on a job again for the FT to the far east where I was in a forest I was three four hours into the trip um, into the tiger, you know, so the tiger being the silver birch trees, you know, like matchsticks, billions of them with a track cut through to a cabin that we were going to stay in for three days with a guy who was working as a tiger conservationist. And we hit the track 
and this guy stopped the car. He was called Alexander Batilov. He stopped the car. He went, Tigra. And right in front of us was a Siberian tiger. A Siberian tiger, there's only 500 left in the world. A professional conservationist, they'd be lucky enough to see one once or twice in their professional career. I saw it in the first few hours of being in Russia. And he, this guy said to me, when I told him about the lost pianos, he goes, it's a sign, you've got to do it. And, you know, I believe in signs. I have this triangle in my hand that I'm toying with. You know, I believe in amulets. I believe in the kind of, you know, the power of something speaking from a place you don't know. And whether or not, whether or not it's real or not, it's real enough to me. And it, um, it, it, it created the beginning of something that became like a love affair. Love affair with landscape, love affair with Siberians, the people. A love, a love affair with nature and also a kind of obsessive quest and I was lucky because when I was in that car with that conservationist I was also with a dear friend who was struggling to change his role of film as this Siberian tiger is lying in the middle of the track and he's changing his Kodak Portra film in the back of his Pentax medium format and we laugh and laugh and laugh because, of course, in the the norm would be a sort of zzz of a digital camera taking forty two thousand pictures on a long lens. But the um, the artistry of my friend Michael Turek does not work with that lack of intentionality. So he instead enjoyed the tiger as a human being in front of something completely profound. I mean, he caught. We laugh about it because I say, "Oh, you didn't get the picture," and he did get a sort of slight faint blur. Um, which he, which is the tiger moving off, but it's by no means um, what you expect. And he, um, and you know, he then joined me on this mega journey and produced his own photographic monograph of his um, his his travels in Siberia. And it was great. You know, it took a long time. It was about three years traveling, something like I don't know, 169 days in Siberia by the end of it all. It was good fun. So. Your hunt was for a piano for that girl. Yeah. So that's not journalism, is it? Uh, no. I mean, it isn't, it isn't, because as I'm going, I am picking up, as I'm, I'm not really, there's, I'm not a musician. I'm not a Russian speaker. Um, I'm not a pianist. So I'm not a historian either. So, I mean, in the wonderful thing about journalism is we're generalists, so we can do all of those things and nothing um so that is why yeah it was journalism because I had to go into all these places and I was looking for the stories that pianos carry inside them not just kind of you know a box of strings and ivories that make music I was and that was always the deal you know there was a fantastic this is important of the, the John Steinbeck um describing his trip to the USSR in the aftermath of the second world war he went with the photographer Robert Capper, the magnum photographer and uh, this was a real moment for me of kind of an epiphany when at the beginning I read these words. It said, he wrote, Steinbeck, we made our plans in this way. If we could do it, it would be a good and a good story. And if we couldn't do it, we would have a story too, the story of not being able to do it. So to me, the aspect of trying um, and the pursuit of the um, the pursuit of the object, however, however, um, however it might elude me, was the kind of the power of it. And the pursuit of an object is is looking for stories and connections and uh, lots of journalism. Yeah, lots of journalism. 
but it's fascinating and maybe not something to get bogged down in but the pursuit of journalism well the journalistic vehicle in this sense was your own story right yeah 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 well no yes and no I mean you know I had various comments from the sort of you know the kind of hardcore travel writing fraternity saying you know there's not enough of her in the book because it's that's the kind of uh, uh, that's the kind of male white narrative, and I I I'm I'm not I'm, I wasn't interested in that. I'm not very interesting. Everybody else's story is so um, there's not a lot of me in it, and I don't regret that. Um, people aren't reading. They don't want to. They don't. I mean, I'm irrelevant to Siberia's history. I'm just a conduit for telling its tale. So, yeah, I don't regret that for a minute, but it was definitely, I've had a few, it's really interesting because people approach it from the stereotypes they're familiar with. And it's, a, you know, a lot of, um, of travel writing, the genre of travel writing is about the uh, heroic male um, making it through the wilderness um, um, as, and that's great sense of achievement. And then if you transfer that into the American um, psyche, it's a three-part structure. You know, it's this sort of Sid Field thing and filmmaking. And uh, you've got to, you've, it's totally not what I just read you, to you from Steinbeck. It's, um, you don't have failure, you only have success. And um, so the American reader, I think, also gets a bit thrown by, by, by the book because it, it doesn't stick to that um, tidy Hollywood arc. Yeah, well, and, you know, the only time you're allowed to fail is if you die heroically. <laughs> that's it and yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so how do pianos end up in odd corners of siberia and in gulags well they don't end up much in gulags the imagined piano ends up in a gulag um but they end up in siberia and the um so imagine you have this thing piano mania this obsessive um fascination with an instrument which is no different from an a, 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 you know the way the television entered our lives or the radio entered our lives it was a it was a form of entertainment and um you know for i think there was one mid century 19th century russian critic who said you know for every 100 apartments there's 99 pianos and one piano tuner uh, so it was obsessive and the russian state before the revolution um sub- created a subsidy system so pianos were cheap as well so everyone uh, people had them um those that didn't wanted them and those that went into siberia which is i i i go by anton chekhov's description from the ural mountains to he uses um, it, um siberia starts in ekaterinburg which is in ural mountains and extends to goodness knows where and i use the poetic latitude of goodness knows where to take me all the way to the pacific so we're talking about a region that is about a tenth eleventh of the world's land surface it's huge huge pre-railway pre-trans-siberian railway so that was finished in 1904 or thereabouts you had just had a road that that road the great siberian tract you would only ever travel in winter because um it was frozen um in spring and summer it was just like a muddy soup of mosquitoes and mess so how do you pull a, 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 a how do you pull a horse and carriage through that you want to go in winter when the ground's hard with a sledge um, and so up until the railway, how did they bring pianos into that, into that hinterland? Um, and they did it on the backs of sledges and they did it through obsession, passion and a desperate need to have this thing that gave um, solace and entertainment. And, and it also gave um, uh, them a sense of identity. 
European Russian identity in this place that was basically an Asiatic indigenous land. So they were holding on to the roots of their of their of their past. Whether those people were governors, governors' wives, um, wealthy exiles. Um, um, there was one Russian princess who followed her husband, who was a kind of libertarian revolutionary. She took a piano on the back of a sledge, you know, 3,000 miles galloping across the wastes of Siberia. Um, Bering, who gives, gives his name to the Bering Sea, he, his wife took one all the way to the Sea of Okotsk um, out there on the Pacific, and then all the way back home again. Um, this was long before railways. So, you know, it's to do with it was it's to do with with the power of music and what it means to someone, mavericks, misfits, whoever you are. Um, what is it that makes you want to have that big, completely unwieldy thing called a piano? Um, what makes you want to fight to take it into a place like that? And that gets to the heart of why, in a way, um, it does let me behave like a journalist because like I'm trying to dig to find out what what is the what is the um, compulsion? What is what is the root of that obsession? Um, uh, so that's why it was interesting to me. With the trains, it becomes easier, but only up to a point because the train runs, you know, five thousand five hundred miles from Moscow to Vladivostok, and it runs down the southern uh, southern side of Siberia. So what happens to all that stuff? That all that territory above um, the tundra, the Arctic Circle, piano is made it up there too. 
So what was your journey like? Enormous fun. I mean, properly good fun, um, properly unpredictable, opportunistic. Uh, you know, we used the trains a lot, um, uh, but also, uh, you know, hitching rides with oil and gas workers out through Western Siberia, through those kind of oil field country, um, staying with Nenet, forest Nenet people, which are the indigenous reindeer herders in the far, far north. Um, just, just, it was... Um, amusing it was warm it was heartening it was occasionally um, overwhelming Um, and uh, yeah I loved it I loved it it was movement and it had there's something what the power of the piano in this in the in the act of researching this book is I'm a English writer I'm knocking on the door of Putin's Russia saying have you got a piano? That's an incredibly neutralizing. Um, it, it, that's a sort of neutralizing entry point. And they open the door and they go, well, that's unusual, but you've just hit a chord because I really care about the piano. I really care about music. And you are taking an interest. And you've come all the way from the UK to ask about it. So there's an immediate connect and in then in the, in the, just in the revolution during the revolution we had a there was a british um uh, consul who was working in ekaterinburg and he has a brilliant line which was russia is profoundly musical and he said the piano is a passport it's a passport in russia and that was my passport it was a way to open up um and be admitted to domestic and spaces and sit over a kitchen table and talk and that is what I love and you know I said it earlier in our conversation I'll say it again um, the relationship that um, I have with space and time as a child it was it was completely open as an adult it became crushed it as a mother it became super crushed as a working mother it sort of toppled until it crashed and when I was in Siberia, I went back to that feeling of my childhood that there was space and time. If you knocked on my door, and you did earlier today, because we were due to meet at 1 p.m., I expect you. If you hadn't, and you said, do you have a piano? I'd go, no, you, you know, schedule, schedule. We need to like make an arrangement for this. Not in Siberia. Knock on the door. Have you got a piano? Yeah, and we'll now, now spend the next five days talking. There's just a different relationship with space and time. To what extent do you think that's Western culture? Oh, totally Western culture. It's also, it's also, um, yeah, I think it's Western culture. I think totally. I mean, you know, I think the same is true of, of places I've worked with in Africa. I think um, communities that live closer to the earth basically are living in rhythm with the with the you know the rising light and the falling light of a given day of the changing seasons. It's a different it, time is set by a different um, clock. And um, uh, as a child, that was my clock. As an adult, um, it's set by a little ding-dong thing on my mobile phone. It's a different relationship. And I love that. It's freedom, basically. I felt free in Siberia. And it's a really interesting thing. You know, people think of Siberia as this sort of, you know, god-awful sort of, you know, one historian called it, you know, the largest continental prison without a roof. Um, It has got really dark history. You know, 2.7 million people died in the Soviet gulag system. Um, The numbers in the Tsarist penal exile colonies before that, you know, huge. Um, 
it's got a really dark history of incarceration, but there is another side to it, which is Siberia lives very far from Moscow, and you know there's a phrase, you know, far from the reach of the Tsar and the Orthodox Church. Um, they live in their communities, they live in the land, and that gives this kind of sense of um, there's a sense of freedom. There's a brilliant guy who was writing in the 1820s um, who was one of these Decembrist revolutionaries, and early, they call it the first Russian, Re- Russian Revolution. And there are a bunch of about 100 of them. They failed to, to depose the Tsar. They failed to, to, to get him off his um, despotic um, throne. And they were all sent to Siberia. And he said something absolutely brilliant. He said, this was in 1820s, The further we moved into Siberia, the more it improved in my sight. To me, the common folk seemed freer, brighter. They better understood the dignity of man and valued valued their rights more highly. That was in the 1820s, you know, kind of amazing. And I felt the, the, the dignity of man is sometimes a very simple thing. It's how they um how they exist in nature how they um exist in their family how they exist in their community and i felt the siberian people that i was lucky enough to encounter not all of course but the majority the dignity of man was um was something i felt um really um uh, good about so it was freedom and dignity i think those things and michael would say the same i mean it's not to say there's some pretty you know pretty ropey moments places and problems but um, um the dominant feeling was space time freedom dignity it was attractive i think those of us who are lucky enough to be well traveled tend to find that that it's just like anywhere yeah. you know you talk about being an optimist yeah it's the minority that'll point a gun at you or try and rob you generally yeah. people are good yeah. the world over yeah they are but we're going into, at the moment, I think we're moving into a sort of mob mentality. And the mob mentality overwhelms that. It's why travel is the most important thing to democracy. It's why travel is the most... I mean, you know, at the moment, I'm in a really, really... Um, um, I'm at a stage where I'm really questioning um, whether I have to get on planes and how I can change my behaviour to be more responsible towards the places that, at the end of the day, um, is also promoting them by writing about them. And how do, I, how do I deal with that ethically when the world is burning and we can't keep those planes in the sky like we've been keeping them in the sky? And I think that the... And then the other side of me is um, travel is absolutely fundamental to democracy. It's absolutely fundamental to freedom of thought. It's fundamental to us as a species to understand each other. When borders close, uh, the mob gets angrier and more dangerous. And that is something that is, you know, completely counter to the way that I want to live my life. And so what do you think the answer is to that? Don't know, don't know. I'm trying to work it out. I think we have to all... um, um, I think we all have to, in this moment in time, and I'm watching, really interesting, I'm watching people on in the sort of social media universe um, getting back on planes and travelling, um, and I admire them because industries need supporting, and, you know, it's a desperate thing, what is it, one in ten work in tourism and travel or whatever, it's a desperate thing watching livelihoods disappear. But equally, I'm not quite there yet, because I believe um, something just happened, something really big just happened and we cannot return 
to what it was before without acknowledging the gravity of what has happened and what it means for the future. So I do not want to return to the act of travel without having refined my frame of reference, refined my scales, the risk, the return versus the risk, the risk not being the gun in the face, but the risk being climatic, the risk being um, community. Um, what Risk versus return, That's the those are the sets of scales we've all got to work with. And it can no longer just be about consumption. I've talked about this a lot. You know, travel cannot just be an act of consumption anymore. It has to be an act of empathy. And we somehow got that scale completely out of balance in the last few um, decades tourism and the consumptive power of tourism overwhelmed the power of travel to connect ideas people from different sides of the wall yeah it's a paradox well it might not be a paradox but people need to travel but well, it is paradox yeah travels ruining everything yeah but can we do that differently i mean i'm trying to do it without flying i'm seeing you know i've got a new book project at the moment i'm seeing how far i can go without flying um i'm definitely believe that we have to be slower and we have to encourage more time in a place rather than this quick you know the sort of the, the the curse of the curse of the world is the it is again it's coming from a place of complete kind of you know western privilege but the one night one night one night quick weekend you know let's bob it out to a small city in europe for three nights it's like that has just got to stop because it's completely unsustainable um why why does why does a city break have to be 48 hours why can't it be you know we have to change it even well, if that means we have less holidays make the ones you do have count more yeah i mean you know, not to sound holier than thou, but my wife and I, and you know, she's not the most environmentally conscious person in the world. She doesn't live and work in this industry that we do, but we're talking about a city break in this, you know, this winter, and we've looked at train prices, and mm. they're low. You know, mm. I don't know if that's just because of a virus, but, mm. you know, we're talking about driving to Morocco. Yeah, and yeah. That would be amazing in itself. Yeah, yeah. It's tiring. I drove to Ireland, I drove to Donegal, right, when lockdown lifted, and... You know, it's a long old drive, ferries and cars, and it's a long old drive. But I also love it. You know, you drive through Enniskillen and you get the, you know, I end up telling my kids the little ignorant history I knew about the troubles. And, you know, you sort of like on land, you notice things differently. Also, and, you know, well, yeah, we'll go into it. But a friend said to me before the first expedition I ever went on, go gently. And I have always remembered it because, mm. you know, I was one of these young white men who was into the idea of I didn't I hadn't worked out that I wanted to conquer mountains but it mm. was all about you know going to the tops of them and things like that and I just don't care about that anymore mm. but this whole idea of going gently and actually you earn the place I love this idea of traveling somewhere slowly so that you've earned your yeah. visit yeah, yeah because us zipping in and out of places is yeah are we actually experiencing there was that person who tried to see how fast they could go to every country in the world and they had like, you know, 500,000 Instagram followers. And that for me is just the pits. Oh yeah, you know? no, I remember being in Antarctica and I was on a job down there, I think it was for The Economist. Yeah, it was The Economist. And um, I flew into a place that some of the folk on your podcast will know, which is called Union Glacier Camp. And Union Glacier is in the interior of Antarctica. And it's where people that are going to climb Mount Vincent, they start. 
a very, very professional operation. And there's a kind of blue ice runway that the Russian Aleutian plane lands. Only the Russians can do ice. And um, it's a beautifully managed camp. And then people that are going to, you know, pull a pull pull their puck across to um, the South Pole. This is where everything is the HQ on the ice. And um, I turned up and in my plane load was a bunch of billionaires. And one of them, because you have to wait for weather windows in Antarctica and they can be very, very capricious. And we arrived having flown in from South America on the Aleutian, onto the Blue Ice Runway. And within an hour, there was an opportunity to fly onto the South Pole on a slightly smaller plane, which is what they'd all paid for. And uh, so some of them went, including someone that reappeared in the next weather window about, I don't know, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt because I've got, I've got my notes in front of me 24 hours, 48 hours later. And, you know, that kind of cool. They got their weather window and then they flew home and then they flew home. And that blew me away that people, that was literally clocking clocking uh, uh, kind of bragging rights um, with zero physical exertion apart from sitting through flights. Uh, uh, that blew my mind. And that was a moment where I thought there's got to be some corrective behavior in this because if we're turning into uh, 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 or parts of our society is turning into travel is just a brag, then um, that's a real super problem. It's yeah. really depressing. It is very easy for us to say, oh, we should all travel less because we've done it loads. You know, we've both been to Antarctica. You've mm-hmm. done 187 days in Siberia, was it? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. And so there's an element of hypocrisy. Massive hypocrisy. But Massive hypocrisy. Even, you know, disregarding all of that, how, what do you plan to do about that, given your profession, your passions, the fact that you aren't just going to start a small holding in Dorset and live a community-based life like all those people you've interviewed? Um, what am I going to do about it? I don't know. At the moment, I'm in an existential crisis about it. I am definitely um, going to... I mean, I can do very active things about it. I am going to travel less often and be in a place for a longer period of time. That's a pretty simple equation I can pull off. I am definitely going to become even more rigorous about the the people and places I write about and effectively promote um, and make sure that that is, I'm not being lazy in my journalism. Uh, you know, I have spent a lot of time working in Africa and there are some people that are just doing it so well and they need a bigger voice. And, you know, that the that's that's the megaphone that journalism has and i need to use that with real intention so it's traveling with and and doing what i do professionally with with even greater intention um it is also um i've got to listen more i really really want to listen more i want to listen to people that know what they're talking about in the environmental space um and that's not just the activists it's the scientists um so i'm trying very hard to really read into that territory more and listen 
Um, so these are all kind of um, small steps, but they, to me, I've, I've, and I've got to be more honest, you know, so to fight for more candor in what I say and do is, is something that as I get older is really, really important to me. So to call it um, both and, and also be called out myself and feel, feel that that is a good thing. Um, we don't have space anymore. I think the kind of fakery of um, the sort of fake realities that we kind of self-justify and travel. We haven't got time for that anymore. There's no space for it. It's not about flight shaming, but it's about being honest about what it took to get to a place. I don't believe in flight shaming. I don't believe in that whole trend. Um, I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, we. it's almost like a silly, boring angle, unless you're really into it, but flights aren't the worst thing we do for the planet. No, they're not the worst. They're not the worst. But they um, are a contributor. Yeah. Um, so it's lots of things, isn't it? It's an accumulation of a way of life and a way of living and a way of... Um, and a way of... I love... I, I do quite a lot of mentoring with writers and I, I learn so much from a generation that's 20 years younger than me and how they think and what matters and what my generation has got really very, very wrong. So it's, it's a lot more listening that's required. And listening takes time. So, you know, if there was one silver lining from this horror, it was that we were given back time in many ways. I was, anyway. I was given back time that I'd lost in space to think and breathe and reflect and listen. And um, I don't want to lose that by speeding back into a world as if something hadn't happened. Yeah. Okay. We're going to draw to a close, so I have, like, a few little questions left. Sure. One's heavy. You said you're an optimist. Mm. Are you happy? Yeah, I am, actually, yeah. Yeah, I am a happy person. Yeah. I mean, I've had... I said to my... I've, I've had moments, of course, but it's... I'm quite a happy person. I often have to pinch myself that that is the case. I am a happy person. And um, when I was finishing my book... I was, um, it was really, really, really stressful. You know, it was three hours deep at night, a night for about three months. And it was, you know, when you write a book, you like putting your heart on the table, even if you're not in it. It's just, a t- it's like literally being cut open and then handing it over to people you don't know to just, you know, then dissect. It's it's a horrible, horrible feeling. And I had the period of closing off the book and pre-publication. It's a long process. Um, that I was really unhappy in that time. I hated it. And I said to my husband, never, ever, ever let me write a book again. Um, I, can't, I can't do this. I want the quick hit of fish and chips, you know, by which I mean you write a story. It's in the newspaper on Sunday. And on Sunday night, it's wrapping up the fish and chips. You know, it's like gone. It's ephemeral. A book is, sits around for a little bit longer, kind of looking you back in it in the eye, you know. Um, and I said, never, ever let me do that again. So that made me very unhappy. But then I've started on another book. So I've obviously got a little problem there. <laughs> yeah, but that's how, that's why human beings are so amazing. Because time heals all wounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no, generally I'm a pretty happy person, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What worries you? Um, my kids. Um, what worries me? Um, it's like I said at the moment, it's kind of like existential um, with kind of the whole sort of 
burning world mob burning world i find it hard like everyone like a lot of people um uh no losing those you love of course you know i've lost people i love in my life and sometimes to circumstances that you would never have predicted or recognized you know i lost a friend to suicide when i was in my 20s and it's just you, you, the, the feeling of helplessness and um, ignorance um, that never leaves you um, ever. Um, so, uh, yeah, those things make me unhappy. But it's a, it's a, not a, it's not. Um, you know, it goes in waves, doesn't it? Our lives go through fluxes and waves, and it's to do with those you love and those you lose. What gives you hope? The same thing that gives me um, fear. Uh, my kids. My kids are great. They give me hope. They're little balls of um, they're little balls of energy that uh, like you know it's another generation. They're little they're little powerhouses of of um, you're about to have a kid, aren't you? Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's, 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 it's incredible. I love having yeah my children. Um, my children they they break all the rules. They um, they completely um, lose a sense of what a day is meant to be between wakefulness and sleepfulness. And you know that's the young when they're very young. Um, but ultimately, they really, really make my kids make me smile. They're very funny, and they are full of joy. And that is childhood at its best. I hope. I mean, maybe if you interviewed them, they might say something completely different. But they give me joy. Yeah, I find it really inspiring talking to you actually because you know I've got my friends on one side who are like the expedition goers and yeah. they've got kids and they make that work but 187 days in Siberia not on and not, off yeah but yeah. not um not um not on and off you know i the, it gets tough and they we all know what the tipping point is it's 2 weeks and in Siberia is doing i'm about to do a 3 week one and we all know that, that tipping point is a week over uh 2 weeks the first week they're glad to be rid of me the second week, they're fine. I mean, I'm, you know, my husband is totally present and amazing. And also, what is really important to understand is I, my working, as a working mother who is traveling a lot, I have a completely unique support um, network. My parents live on a old farm, um, a couple of hours walk across this valley, so 15 minutes drive. My sister, the other way. So I... I I don't even uh, the doors are just open. My kids have only ever been with family in my absences. They've never been with anyone else. They've just been with family. So they have a very close relationship with their grandparents, etc. So it's a completely unique set of circumstances because a lot of people that travel and work, um, their parents might be might have passed away. They might be in a different country. It's a completely different set of privileges that I am that I'm is my support matrix if that makes sense I think that's really important to say otherwise it's kind of it appears like it's effortless it's not it's enabled it's a totally different thing and I I don't take that for granted at all but yeah. you see people like I mean you know I I if there's one there's uh, things that fill you with joy 
Leo holding with his kid on top of a mountain. I mean, that those little posts I see of him with his, that's just like, that is hope and joy. That is hope and joy, you know? Next generation. Also, another, uh, the, the, um, um, the Donegal man, Ian Miller, you know, his kid going through some kind of crazy little narrow gap on, I think it was Oe Island in... Uh, that again that image it's in my head it filled me with joy and my when I'm in Mongolia my youngest son I've I've never forget this he was probably about seven and I went in and I said um where's Jack and Jack came back he was seven he came back at about three in the afternoon he'd just been out with the herder kids riding he's a good rider and he'd just been out with the herder kids he just disappeared that's joy it's great love it it's funny you've just given me three examples all of which were centred around an adventure. <laughs> Maybe by accident. Maybe by accident. Yeah. What, so this is my last question. Why, not why do you, why do human beings need adventure? Oh, okay. Now, let me just, this is going to take one minute. So you might have to cut and then recut in. Just let me read this. Because I found this written in the 1930s by a German sociologist called George Simmel. And he wrote an an essay called The Adventurer. And just read this. This is so good. Adventure has the gesture of the conqueror, the quick seizure of opportunity, yet also the complete self-abandonment to the powers and accidents of the world, which can delight us, but in the same breath can also destroy us. So good. So good. Risk. Return, serendipity, conquering, failure, success. It's all in that. Three lines, brilliant. George Simmel. We'll leave it there. Yeah, leave it there. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can find us and follow us on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. The podcast is produced in association with Sidetrack magazine. So for an extra adventure fix, visit sidetrack.com. The podcast is produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. And as always, please um, do head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They make a huge, huge difference.